Hi. Hello. What's up? Good morning. Uh, you may be seated. My name is Tyler Crandall, and I am the youth pastor here at Common Way Church. Uh, and today I'm a little, a little stopped up, so hopefully that's not too much of a distraction for me or for you this morning. Lisa, please be careful. These TVs are tricky. Uh, this is actually the TV out of the Williamson room because I broke the TV that is usually on stage. Uh, on Friday night, I was here, I was doing a run through, and this exact same thing happened where I got stuck on this wire and I pulled over this microphone and it nailed the TV and it broke the TV. And I just stood here and I went, no, 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 yeah, sure, uh, no, no, no. And so that's what happened. I was trying to be very careful to not smudge the TV because we've had um, lots of fingerprints on it. So all my attention was up top. None of my attention was down low. And you see what happens. So ladies and gentlemen, this morning, you are going to get the message delivered by a big dumb animal. Um, <laughs> anyway, before we get into this, uh, that was a little story. And I, and I was just curious uh, you know, right now we are in the season of Advent, and Advent is a time of waiting, a time of anticipation. And, and when we talk about Advent, we are talking about the Christmas story, the, the, the story of the birth of Jesus. And that's got me thinking a little bit about stories. So what are some of your favorite stories? I'm talking about favorite books, favorite movies, favorite family tradition stories that have been told for generations. Um, and I actually, this is like a crowd participation thing. So don't, don't tell me the whole story, of course, but you know, just a quick synopsis or the title or like the time Tyler broke the TV or the time I told my dad that I got arrested and I really didn't. That's also a story from my life. But what are, what are some of your favorite stories? Anyone? The Velveteen Rabbit. The Velveteen Rabbit. There we go. We're getting it. More? The Velveteen Rabbit. Luke was three years old and said he was writing his dissertation. Awesome. When Luke was three years old and said he was writing his dissertation. Very good. I can barely say dissertation now, so for a three-year-old, that is something else. Any others? Let's get one more. Family Game Night. Okay. Well, some of my favorite stories are uh, the movie The Shawshank Redemption. Uh, I love the Harry Potter books. And of course, another favorite story of mine is Cool Runnings. <laughs> when I was a kid, I loved some storybooks. I loved this one called Robert the Rose Horse. It was about a horse that was allergic to roses, and eventually it helped him save the day. The story about Ping which I love the title of it is The Story About Ping. This was one of my favorites. I had another favorite that my grandma Pritchett used to read to me. It's called Miss Susie. It was the story of a squirrel and some toy soldiers. And then, of course, as a kid, I also loved Cool Runnings. <laughs> a good story, it, it moves us. It can teach us about who we are. It can inspire us to be the kinds of people that we want to be. And some stories we know our fiction, and some stories we know are fact, and others are this like hybrid of fact and fiction, like Cool Runnings. <laughs> but sometimes it can be hard to tell the difference between the fact and the fiction. And sometimes when we're reading our Bibles, 
it can get a little confusing because some parts of the Bible are written as poetry and, and songs. Other parts are written as laments, expressing the way that people wish things were. Others are an orderly account of events that actually took place. Some parts are literal, some parts are figurative, some parts are prophetic and confusing and scary. And Jesus, he even taught in stories that were called parables. And those weren't necessarily true stories. They were a teaching tool. But something that's really interesting to me about the Christmas story that we read about in Scripture from, from the book of Matthew and from the book of Luke is that they're not set up as once upon a time type stories. They're not fairy tales. They're not fables. They're not inspiring examples even of how to live well. The biblical Christmas texts are accounts of what actually happened in history, and they're laid out in that way. The account from Matthew, it begins with a lengthy genealogy of Jesus, dating from Abraham up through Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. The account from Luke that we're going to be in today, it begins with an introduction about why Luke is even writing his version of the gospel. Luke 1.1 says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And throughout his writing, Luke works at placing the events that are happening in this story into real historical context. He says things like, during the time of Herod, king of Judea, or another time he says, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken, the first one, while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And another time he says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, and you get it, right? This is a true story anchored in real historical events. And as we look at the Christmas story, as with many stories that we know really well, the challenge for us today is to not just gloss over it or to tune it out or decide that we already know it inside and out, but to approach it with curiosity and with an openness to maybe find something new. So let's get into it. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1 today. If you want to grab your Bible or your phone and meet me there, we're going to be starting on Luke 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Okay, I want to pause for a moment here and give some background information because as with most stories, it helps to know the characters a little bit. So in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, this Elizabeth that we're talking about here, she is the wife of Zechariah, who is a priest and and. When this story takes place, he was in Jerusalem working in the temple. Uh, Elizabeth is actually a descendant of 
Aaron, who was the brother of Moses, who was kind of like the first priest of post-Egyptian Exodus Israel. You follow that? Okay. Uh, she was also barren and very old. So Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah, they were like really good people. They were righteous people, but they had never been able to have a baby. And for Elizabeth, this would have brought a lot of disgrace because in their culture, that was kind of like the main thing a woman could do to, to gain any kind of status was to have a baby, uh, especially a son. And for years and years and years, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they prayed for this, but it just didn't happen for them. So this one time, Zechariah is working in the temple, and he's burning incense in the Holy of Holies, and an angel shows up to talk to him. And the angel tells Zechariah that God had heard their prayers and that he and Elizabeth were going to have a baby. And this baby would go on to be great in the sight of the Lord and be filled with the Holy Spirit and bring many of the people of Israel back to the Lord their God, and that he would go on before the Messiah and prepare the way for him, and they were to name him John. Now, Zechariah didn't really believe here because he and Elizabeth were old and they were pretty sure at this point that that ship had sailed and that Elizabeth was not going to be able to have any babies. And because he didn't believe, Zechariah was made unable to speak. Okay, so this is the Elizabeth that we're talking about here. She's in the sixth month of her pregnancy and spoiler alert, the baby in her belly is John the Baptist. Okay, Next up is Gabriel. It says, God sent this, the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. Gabriel is the angel who visited Zechariah and told him all that stuff. And I lost my spot. I'm so sorry. Yeah, he's also, <laughs> we're out of order. Awesome. He's also the same angel <clears throat> that went to visit Daniel. Yes, this Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den. So Gabriel is the same, there it is, page three, right where it should be after page eight. Okay, <laughs> so page three here. Gabriel is the same angel who told Zechariah this news about becoming an old dad. Uh, he's the same angel that visited Daniel, and this would have happened like 500 years before he's visiting Zechariah and before he's visiting Mary. And so this same angel, he showed up in prophetic times with Daniel to help him understand a vision that he had seen about the end times. And this vision was about like two horned rams and a shaggy sheep. And I am going to stop there because it's crazy. But this same angel, he shows up in the Christmas story announcing the birth of two little babies that would grow up to be really special. The man who would prepare the way for the Lord and then the Messiah himself, Jesus. 500 years between these two encounters. It's probably worth noting here, too, that, that when Gabriel shows up to Zechariah and then to Mary, it's been about 400 years since the people had heard anything from God, from an angel or a prophet or anything. And then within, two, within about six months, he shows up to these two people to tell about babies. It's pretty cool. Okay. Let's keep going here. The next character is Joseph. Okay, and here's what we know about Joseph. He is a descendant of David, and he is pledged to be married to a virgin. And I don't know about you, but I hear the words descendant of David, and I kind of think, all right, so like royalty. 
David was arguably the best king of Israel. And so, yeah, thinking about his descendant, I would expect some status and some power. But we don't really get that here. Because there were at least 25 generations between King David and Joseph. That's so many generations. It was hard for me to even wrap my head around. So I got on Ancestry.com, and I did a free trial. And if, Lisa, if you could remind me in like two weeks to cancel that, that would save me about $32, and that would be awesome. Uh, but anyway, I was able to go back to Elder John Crandall. He was born in Shropshire, England in 1609. He died somewhere in Rhode Island in 1676. And by my math, that was about 11 generations and about 400 years back. Now, the distance between Joseph and King David would be at least twice that, at least in terms of generations. I don't know about years-wise, but so many generations, like a lot can change. I mean, I still see the family resemblance, but a lot can change. And so for, for Joseph, I, I don't know that being a relative of David came with a whole lot of, of perks other than being able to be at a party and say, I am from the line of David, right? Before I go on, I, I want to come clean about something. The story about Elder John is true, but that was not a picture of Elder John Crandall. It was a picture of Henry Hudson, <laughs> but that was what came up when I typed in man, 1609, England, and so we went with it. All right. Okay, but last but not least in our story here, I know you're like, what are we even talking about? We're going through the first couple verses of this story, is Mary, okay? The virgin's name was Mary, and here's what we know about Mary. She's a virgin, and she's pledged to be married to Joseph, and that's all that it says here about her. It's almost as if she's an orphan. Like, there's no mention of a lineage. She's not even married to Joseph yet, and so she can't ride those line of David coattails and take on that inherited status yet. She is identified simply as a virgin. Okay, so that was kind of a lot from just two verses. But we're going to jump back in to our story now. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy... God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. We might expect right after that for Mary to be like, Ooh, la, la, greetings me, me who are highly favored. The Lord is with me. All right, Gabriel, I like the sound of that. But that is not her response at all. Let's read on. It says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be greatly troubled and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. And now that I think about it, I could see that because she might just be like, uh, me? Are you sure? Gabriel, I think you've got the wrong person because God hasn't spoken to anyone like this in a long time. And so I think this is a mistake and we can just keep it between us. It's not a big deal. But Gabriel, he keeps on going, and he explains some more. He says, do not be afraid. <clears throat> Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, 
and you were to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. Okay, so now at this point, Mary is starting to get more excited, and she's starting to be more in, and she's like, let's go, gonna have a baby, the baby's gonna be king, and then Gabriel, he starts singing, Mary, did you know that your baby boy would suck? But no, that's not what happens either. Mary has questions real practical questions. And I can't tell if they are coming from a place of concern or of doubt. I kind of don't think so. I think it's more towards just a question about logistics. She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. And now we're getting to know Mary a little bit more. And so it's maybe not as big a surprise that her response is this. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. So Mary agrees. She gives a, a reserved but willing yes, even though I'm sure she still had questions and fears. She's going to accept the assignment. She will carry this baby and she will give birth to him. And beyond the implications of what carrying a baby and giving birth means, which are big implications. There's also social implications for Mary and for Joseph, the man she's going to marry. See, Joseph, he's going to be walking around in this shame and honor society that they find themselves in, and he's going to be with a pregnant fiance, and he knows that he's not the father. And even if Mary just like lays low until after they're married and the baby comes, people are going to bring over a casserole, and they're going to see this baby, and they're going to start counting and they're going to be like, oh, wait a minute, this baby is not nine or 10 months from when they got married. Oh, Mary was pregnant. And they will assume logically, I might add, that Mary and Joseph didn't wait until marriage or that Mary had cheated on him. And either one of these scenarios would lead to them being shamed and socially excluded and rejected and it would be a scandal. But you know what? If, if we believe that this Christmas story is true, and, and I believe that, then we believe something way more scandalous than this. We believe that God, the creator of the universe, came to this earth in the form of a human baby and made his dwelling among people, that God, in the form of his son Jesus, became Emmanuel, God with us, that the infinite, all-knowing, everlasting God took on human flesh. That, as Philip Yancey says, the God who roared, 
who could order armies and empires about like pawns on a chessboard. This God emerged in Palestine as a baby who could not speak or eat solid food or control his bladder, who depended on a teenager for shelter, food, and love. And for a long time now, I kind of thought I understood this. I kind of thought that I got the whole Jesus is fully God and fully human thing. But lately, I've been blown away by thinking about what this actually means. Guys, when God came in the person of Jesus, he had to take on the limitations of what it means to be human. Like he was hungry, and he was thirsty, and he was tired. He felt pain, like physical and emotional pain, and that he died, and that he did all of this on purpose. He chose a really, really difficult path to come as a baby to a couple of really unremarkable people. Like, isn't that just a huge risk? <laughs> Aren't babies helpless and vulnerable? Yeah, they are. And then why not come to some people that have a little bit of status or some security or something? In a lovely book that we've been reading as a staff called Making Room in Advent, Betty Dickinson says, there are lots of ways God could have chosen to come and dwell among us, but we learn a lot about who he is and what he is like by how he comes into the world. The Lord of heaven and earth doesn't appear with a booming voice that echoes throughout the world saying, here I am, worship me. The king of kings doesn't arrive with fanfare, trumpets, and a rolled-out red carpet. He chooses to arrive in such a small way that he literally can't be noticed. The scope of his entire person arrives bound within the walls of an imperceivably small cluster of cells. He can't think, he can't move, or do anything miraculous. Now, eventually... He does those things, but this is not how he chooses to make his entrance. The all-powerful God chose to come in weakness and vulnerability. The one who needs nothing chose to be in need. So I'm getting it more. I'm understanding more. But I kept getting stuck on why. <laughs> why? You know, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. You know, in one of our Christmas songs, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, we say, mild he lays his glory by. He voluntarily and willingly and lovingly set aside his power and became mortal and vulnerable. And nobody forced him to do this. He wasn't just carrying out orders or fulfilling a duty. He was keeping a promise. A promise that we would not be separated from God forever, 
a promise that we would be brought into God's family as his sons and daughters. Jesus faced unimaginable pain and a shameful death out of love for me and for you and for all of us. But why? In the Old Testament, God appears to people as a smoking furnace, as a pillar of fire, a hurricane, a tornado, big, loud, terrifying stuff. You know, when Moses, who was like God's right-hand man, asks to see God's face, God says, better not, because it'll kill you. And the best we can do is that you can get near my outskirts and see my back. And then even when that happens, Moses goes back down to the people, and because of this encounter, his face is so radiant that the people can't even look at him. But in the person of Jesus, this same God became flesh, and not to bring judgment, but to bear it, to pay the penalty for our sins, to take away the barrier between humanity and God so that we can be with God. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And in doing this, God became approachable. God became someone that people could talk to and listen to and eat with and touch. God is so bent on loving us that he became helpless. He so desires to empathize with us that he refused the comforts and expanse of heaven to experience the pain and limits of humanity. He's so set on drawing near to us that he constrained himself within the most vulnerable dwelling we have ever called home, the womb. By taking on human limits, God truly understands us from the inside of our experience. Whatever we're going through, he understands. Because God chose limits, he is able to relate with us, and we're able to relate with him. He's closed the gap. In a book called Hidden Christmas, Timothy Keller says, the incarnation means that God suffered and that Jesus triumphed through suffering. That means that Jesus now has an infinite power to comfort. Christmas shows you a God unlike the God of any other faith. Have you been betrayed? Have you been lonely? Have you been destitute? Have you faced death? So has he. Some will say, you don't understand. I have prayed to God for things, and God ignored my prayer. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus cried out, Father, may this cup be taken from me. And he was turned down. Jesus knows the pain of unanswered prayer. Others will say, I feel like God has abandoned me. What do you think Jesus was saying on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus gets it. He doesn't just walk, sorry, talk the talk. He walks the walk. Christianity says, God has been all the places you have been. He has been in the darkness you are in now and more. And therefore, you can trust him. You can rely on him because he knows and has the power to comfort 
strengthen, and bring you through. He chose to take on the limits of our humanity. But not only that, he also invited Mary into partnership with him by dwelling within her limits. Mary measured low in every possible social ranking of the time. Her age, she was young. Her family heritage, not mentioned. Her gender, female. Her marital status, unmarried. And yet, she is favored by God, and she is chosen by God, and she is invited to participate in his grand rescue plan. And what has really floored me lately about this story is what God doesn't do here. He doesn't ask Mary to do miracles. He doesn't ask her to get a theology degree. He doesn't ask her to be strong or expect her to be smart or funny or famous or able to multitask well. He doesn't ask for her to have the right job or the picture-perfect family. And he doesn't tell her to just figure it out and then I'll report back. No. He invites her into a partnership by asking to dwell within the confines of who she already is. <laughs> and when that invitation was made, how does she respond? Mary doesn't roll up her sleeves and get to work. She doesn't ask, well, what do I do? Or what should I do? Or how do we get started? No, she gives that reserved but willing yes. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Another translation says, let it, to let it happen to me as you have said. So what's the invitation for us? We've talked a lot about the incarnation, and how wild that is. We've talked a lot about Mary's limits, but what's the invitation for us? Well, God took on limits. God worked through Mary and met her in her limits. And so I think the invitation for us is to recognize our limits. Instead of hating them or resenting our limits, what if we viewed them for what they are? Instead of constantly trying to defy our limits, to push past them or rise above them, what if we allow ourselves to meet God in the midst of them? God invited Mary just as she was, and he does the same for us now. He invites us just as we are. In this book, Making Room in Advent, it's a book that has greatly helped me in preparing this sermon. Betty Dickinson says, God doesn't ask us to rise above our limits. Instead, he comes to us in the midst of them. This is good news for us, since we have all kinds of limitations. Limited energy, time, abilities, experiences, mental and emotional capacity, just to name a few. 
And when I read that, I, of course, took it as a challenge to see how many limits I could list. And so I pulled out my little legal pad and I brainstormed for a few minutes and this is my list of limits. Uh, attention span just jumped out to me now. Uh, sight, smell, taste. I got really into just like um, our senses. Those are limitations. This little section here cracked me up. Strength, speed, endurance, jumping, temperature regulation. These are all limits of mine. I can't jump anymore. I've never been fast. I am actually getting stronger. Uh, but temperature, that's so dumb. Um, <laughs> but each of these limits is a place where I can meet God. Even the silly ones like temperature regulation, right? When I'm standing up here and I'm starting to get a little sweaty and hot, this can be a place where I can meet God. I can go, Jesus, what? What was the weather like in the Garden of Gethsemane? You know, when you were walking around, were you hot a lot? Were the, were the disciples like complaining all the time about being hot and cold? And man, I guess whatever the case may be, Jesus, thank you for coming and doing all that you did for me. We all have limits. That is part of being human. And I don't know about you, but I am often trying to push past my limits. I'm not trying to honor them. Back in August, I was reading and thinking a lot about Sabbath. And I remember this quote that rocked me. Barbara Brown Taylor says, limiting my activity does not help me feel holy. Doing more feels holy. We live in a world that is obsessed with pushing through limits. There are entire ad campaigns that are built around it. And even in church, we often celebrate pushing through limits, and we can turn efficiency and worth ethic into idols. You know, just because someone has worked in a ministry for 30 years and never taken a sabbatical doesn't mean it's the right way to do it. And even as I worked on this message, I've kind of been trying to like do it all and do it all as excellently as I can. At our staff meeting on Tuesday, we had a little discussion about who was going to lead music this week because Cliff's out and we weren't sure if Nathan was going to be able to do it. And I thought, and then I even said out loud, I mean, I could do it. That's idiotic. And thankfully, the staff team saw that it was idiotic, and they're like, no, you're not going to do that. Matt even told me in the hallway later this week, he's like, I was going to do it before I let you do it. <laughs> Guys, that was not at all choosing to honor or live within my limits. That was me trying to do more to feel holy. But our limits are not obstacles to overcome. They're invitations. I want to invite you to join me in a, in a breath prayer. We've kind of been doing these here and there, and that book, Making Room in Advent, has one for each of the days. And this one just seems really apropos. So the way this works is, is we inhale and we pray something. You can pray it out loud. You can, you can just think it. You can whisper it. I always like to assume this posture, 
but you don't have to. It's really open-ended. But as we inhale, we're going to pray, God, you chose limits. And as we exhale, we'll pray, so I can too. Would you join me? God, you chose limits. chose limits so I can do God you chose limits so I can do as we close I've got a couple of questions that I'm going to put up that I, I want you to spend actually just like a full minute thinking about. And if you want to jot anything down on your phone or a notebook or anything like that, I want you to consider these two questions. What is one limit I'm resisting that I could embrace instead? And how might I meet God within this limit? Would you stand with me as I pray? God, thank you for each and every person here or every person listening to this. God, thank you that you see us and that you know us, that you are rooting for us. Thank you that you came to this earth to save us and that in the process, you saw what it's like here. And now you're more relatable than ever. Help us come to you in times that are good, in times that are bad, in times that are somewhere in the middle. And Lord God, meet us where we are. Lord God, if there's anybody here today that does not know you, Lord, I pray that you would open up their hearts to them. God, that they would open up their hearts to you. It's in the holy and precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. God chooses to dwell within our human limitations. And this is the kind of work that he has been doing from the beginning. He breathed life into mortal flesh, and he's still doing it today. Thank you for being here today. We hope to see you again next week for Christmas Eve. Go in peace. Thank you. <laughs>